My fearless forecast is called Nikki Haley at a Pesach program. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on Power Politics. In today's program, who's gaining the upper hand in D.C. as we edge toward 2024 and the presidential candidate selection process? Is it establishment Republicans or the MAGA crowd? We'll also talk about the outsized influence of George Soros, fair or foul. And we will speak with Tevi Troy, the former Jewish liaison to President George W. Bush, who will talk about the changing of the Jewish guard at the Biden White House. And of course, our influencer of the week and our fearless forecast. So first up on today's program is the 2024 election. We're not that far away. It's uh, coming up in November 2024. And the election, aside from the presidency, is set to draw a flood of Senate candidates built in the traditional Republican mold. So what we have is the McConnell wing of the party, if you can call them that. They're trying to regain their foothold over the MAGA forces, which are controlled by former President Trump. And this is all after the disappointing lack of any red wave that the Republicans were hoping for in the midterms in 2022. So that's in one corner, the McConnell wing, the more conventional Republicans. And in the next corner, and you can call them freedom fighters or the rabble rousers, if you will, uh, whatever you want to call them, the MAGA wing. This is the pro-Trump Republican wing of the party, and it's still very, very strong. And they're out there fighting every day for positioning. So, Maury, you're a little closer to the scene than I am. How do you see things playing out? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of Senate races that are up. There's these cycles. Everyone knows that senators are elected every six years. Uh, members of the House are elected every two years. So this go around, you have 34 Senate races, but the Democrats are defending 23. The Democrats are defending 23 of the races, which means Democratic senators who are incumbents, current senators, have to defend those seats. So it's a big deal, but I think it's a big deal because of three states. West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana. So on paper, it seems as if the Democrats have a much tougher road to hoe. I think on paper, they have a tougher road to haul because they have to defend so many of those open seats. And because when you look at Joe Manchin's of the world or Sherrod Brown's or John Tester's, they are very active Democrats in their party, in party politics and everything else like that. But in their state, they are in red states. These are red states that they are defending. And so on paper, it looks like Benjamin. The Republicans should maybe, you know, finally have their wave in some meaningful way on paper. Is Joe Manchin beatable in West Virginia? It's interesting because um, Larry Sabato's famous crystal ball from the University of Virginia came out with its analysis of all the Senate races. The crystal ball basically said that based on this, you would assume that the Senate is going to flip. Places like Manchin are going to flip, other things like that. But they said the entire Senate is a toss up. And a toss up means they have no idea. It could go. Republican, it could go Democrat. And the reason for that, the number one reason, there's a number two we could talk about. The number one reason is candidate recruitment, like you talked about, Benjamin. Who do they get to run for these seats? Because maybe Joe Manchin is beatable on paper, but if they get somebody who is too far right or they get someone who can be demonized or caricatures, it's going to be very difficult for them to beat a Joe Manchin. I would say the same thing probably applies in Arizona to Kristen Cinema. She decided that she's not going to be a Democrat anymore, although she's still caucusing with the Democrats. 
There's also been some talk as to whether she actually might flip parties and become a Republican before the next election. How do you see that playing out? I think the biggest fear that everyone seems to have on the Democratic side of things is if she runs an independent and splits that vote. Anybody new to politics, new to campaigns has to just imagine it like a pizza pie. And there's only so much pizza to go around. So if six Democrats can claim the pie and there's four pieces of pie left, okay, the Democrats going to win the thing. But if there's three people trying to claim the pie and one of them is an independent like her, and she's got four slices, and then another Democrat runs in the race, and they've got three slices. Uh, I mean, they've got two slices, for example. The Republican may, uh, I did my pizza math wrong, but you get the point. The point is, is that a cinema can get two slices, a, Dem- a Democrat can get two slices, and a Republican can go get six slices and win the pie. So, like, it's difficult. So, overall, it sounds like the Republicans have a better chance to win in Arizona. But as you mentioned before, Maury, It has a lot to do with the type of candidate and the quality of candidate that's running. The Republicans, they have to avoid another George Santos fiasco. I was reading something today that I found of interest. There's a group called American Majority. It's run by Ned Ryan, who's a former George W. Bush speechwriter, and also uh, the son of the Olympic miler Jim Ryan, who, when I was much younger, was the fastest smiler in the world. And uh, Mr. Ryan mentioned a lot of areas Uh, And to me, these are no-brainers when it comes to vetting candidates. He talks about doing a personal evaluation of candidates, uh, checking if they have core competencies. Do they have a good character? Do they have integrity? What's their ideology? Maybe most important of all, are they electable? You need to get a clear blueprint of a candidate's key natural behaviors and talents. That's another parameter they set. Uh, You need to determine exactly how their character traits fit in with the mission and goals of the party and identify where it matches and where it doesn't match. So are the Republicans going to start doing this to avoid another George Santos? To me, this should be the default behavior. I think the Republican National Party, similar to the Democratic National Party or to any of these committees that elect on the Senate or the the House, desperately want to do these things. But there's only so much that someone could control within a state caucus or state committee or anything else like that. And I strongly encourage people, certainly those listening in America, to Go and look at what a local uh, Republican committee looks like or Democrat committee looks like in New Jersey or in New York or in Ohio, wherever it is. And what they'll see is, is that they're not waiting for a call from the Republican National Committee to determine who they back and who they support. They're just not waiting for those calls. So there's vetting that happens. But at the end of the day, there are very active primaries. And those who are able to win those primaries are those who are able to pick up those local Republican committees in very small towns, very small areas who maybe have been the boss of their particular Republican politics for 20 years, they're going to ignore whatever it is the national party uh, may or may not say. So there's a lot going on there that the national parties may vet and they may wish this is our ideal candidate. I mean, I think the average Republican or Democratic campaign committee would love to grow candidates in labs and deploy them that meet exactly the polling criteria to get elected. It just doesn't work like that, Benjamin. Okay, so we'll never have the perfect candidate. It sounds like whoever's closer to the grassroots, though, on the local level, is always going to have the inside track. Yeah, and I also think that Trump and AOC reset things because what Trump and AOC demonstrated was despite the party establishment not backing you, you could still win these races. And it used to be, and I feel old saying this, but it used to be in my day that when a candidate that maybe wasn't an establishment candidate or didn't have the proper vetting or whatever it may be was going to run, everyone either laughed at them or convinced them not to run. Now, if anybody wants to run, why would they not just run? 
Why would they not challenge the establishment? Why would they not go and do that after so many examples of beating the establishment, of beating the perfect candidate? I think we may see more of that as we uh, go further out, as we get closer to the elections. If it's not the local influence, then uh, there's a lot of money involved in politics and uh, uh, money still uh, calls the shots. And that's going to bring me to our next topic of the day. I was reading in the New York Post this week an expose by Matt Palumbo. Uh, Matt is the author of a book called Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. Palumbo calls George Soros the most dangerous man in America. From Palumbo's point of view, he talks about how Soros has invested over the years at least $40 million, which for Soros is basically a drop in the bucket. He's a multi-billionaire. I'll get to exactly who George Soros is in a second. But what Soros did with that $40 million is he successfully dropped that money into the campaigns of a minimum of 75 prosecutors and district attorneys around the country who have a very progressive philosophy when it comes to arrests, when it comes to uh, trials, when it comes to jail sentences, when it comes to bail. He's very liberal on these issues. Aside from that, Soros basically spent uh, $230 million, according to this article, uh, to buy influence among the media. He's got top media people around the country, like Christine Amanpour of CNN and Lester Holt of NBC, who sit on the boards of organizations that he sponsored. Now, who is George Soros? Here's a quick biography. He's 92 years old. He's Jewish. He was born in Hungary. He was a hedge fund manager on what they called Black Wednesday. That was the day in September 1992 when the British pound collapsed. Uh, George Soros was fortunate to be short the British pound that day, means he uh, placed bets in the financial markets that the pound would go down. He was right. He made over a billion dollars in one day. Uh, they credited him with breaking the Bank of England that day. Now, since then, the Bank of England has made a fairly good recovery. They're on solid ground, and so is George Soros. He's made a lot more than that initial one billion, and he's used a lot of those profits to create left-wing think tanks. Now, to his credit, he used a lot of money in his earlier years to help a lot of countries in Eastern Europe set up democratic institutions uh, once they were able to extricate themselves from the uh, control of the Soviet Union. But uh, the influence he's had over the prosecution in America and uh, the DA's office has been incredible. You know, Maury, I consider this the generational battle of our times between liberals and conservatives. No matter what side you're on, everyone's trying to win at the polls, you know, especially the presidency, Congress, etc. But Soros has been shrewd because he decided to uh, use his money and concentrate at a lower level, the district attorney, the prosecutor. He's been extremely successful, and uh, if you want to look at it from uh, his point of view, but from uh, a matter of uh, safety and law and order, you know, how do you measure success? If you take a look at Philadelphia, Larry Krasner got a million and a half dollars in backing from Soros. He became the DA in Philadelphia. He ended up coming in, dropping charges on more than 60% of shooting cases and 37% of illegal firearms cases in the two years after taking office. Uh, there's been uh, many, many more shootings and homicides. Philadelphia is a big crime city now. Uh, so maybe on that basis, I can understand why uh, Palumbo will call Soros the most dangerous man in America. It's indirect damage, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the streets are not as safe. People are not as secure as they used to be. Look, I'll say two things. Number one is, is that the idea of influencing the court is very, very old, and any sort of judicial process is extremely old in America. It goes back to fights over Marshall, the chief justice, at the start of the American 
government. It continues on to FDR and him trying to stack the Supreme Court. And it continues from there where last year's overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, if you speak to activists on both sides of that, that was an attempt to put justices in the court for a, a 25, 30 year period of time that would make a decision based on a particular outcome that was desired. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of funding on both sides that goes into uh, the judiciary system and to the idea that if you can't beat them from a policy side, can we beat them from uh, the legal side, from the court side? And that's the area that we want to do. And uh, I think you're seeing a lot of that shape out now over the DAs and the battles over crime that are, are happening. I think the reason why people like our podcast is because we try to show sort of both sides. So on the one side, it's easy to sort of sit there and say, as a lot of these reporters are doing, one side is saying, well, they allowed this person out on bail. They allowed this person out from a crime perspective, et cetera. The other side is sitting there and saying, we're not prosecuting X, Y, and Z cases because now we're able to focus on these other cases, which are helping do this, this, and this, and this. And so I don't think the average DA is sitting there and saying, we're not going to do anything or we're just closing down the justice system. But the two sides are sort of fighting against each other for this messaging. The other thing I'll say is that, and I think this is a topic that we could get to in another episode, especially if listeners are interested in this, if you're talking about the influence over the media and the amount of money that's spent there, obviously we got to talk about the fact that it's extremely, extremely important how much influence the fourth estate, as it's called, uh, has over American politics, starting with probably in the most serious way, yellow journalism and Pulitzer and Hearst and all these people at the turn of the 20th century and them helping to start a war and just continuing on there to what is Fox News, the left media infrastructure as well. So there's just a lot to unpack there. And I think a, a Soros, a sort of similar to a Rupert Murdoch, is going to be known historically as someone in the 21st century who put his thumb on the scale to make a very big uh, impact, similar to what Murdoch did as well. I would also say similar to what Sheldon Adelson did here in Israel, where he started a free newspaper, Israel Hayom. And because it was free, which is a very attractive price, he was able to become the largest circulation daily in Israel. His paper has a right-wing slant, and Israel Hayom, Sheldon Adelson's paper, it became a very underrated factor in why Israel and the Israeli electorate is turned to the right. Maury, I understand that you had a chance to talk with Tevi Troy, the best-selling presidential historian. Let's play that interview. We're extremely excited to have with us a friend of Binyamin, a friend of mine. But uh, in addition to being a great guy, he's a extraordinarily knowledgeable about all the topics we talk about here on a regular basis. He is a best-selling presidential historian. He is a former senior White House aide. He worked at DHS as an undersecretary. He is the real deal. Tevi Troy, welcome to the program, Tevi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and I love the topics you guys talk about. So I don't want to get right into it because this is uh, really interesting and sort of feeds into the worlds that have merged for you. I saw that we have a new White House chief of staff and I saw as well that he happens to be uh, MOT, a member of the tribe. Right away, my Twitter feed and everything else is Tevi Troy, Tevi Troy, Tevi Troy, because there's a lot of interesting background here, Tevi, right? Yeah, absolutely. He is Jewish. I saw him. I actually met him once at Rabbi Shemtov's Hanukkah menorah lighting on the ellipse. And I don't think he's from or anything, but he is Jewish. And it is interesting. And the thing I pointed out is that he is Biden's second chief of staff, and both of them have been Jewish. It used to be a really big deal when there was a Jewish White House chief of staff. The first one happened under Reagan, Ken Duberstein. Then we didn't have one for almost 20 years until Josh Bolton 
did it under the Bush administration. And, and to that point, there'd never been a Democratic Jewish chief of staff. Then Obama had two and now Biden's had two. But all these presidents have had chiefs of staff. Biden thus far is the only president to have only Jewish chiefs of staff. And that's <laughs> the point I tweeted out and got a lot of attention for. And in the chief of staff role, just because a lot of our listeners are brand new to politics, the chief of staff role is top 10 in D.C. in terms of power and abilities, top five. How important is that historically for uh, the president? Well, without doubt, is the most powerful unelected position in Washington, right? The president is elected, the speaker of the House is elected, the vice president is elected. The chief of staff is appointed by the president. There's no Senate confirmation process. And this person is the most powerful person within the White House apparatus next to the president. They have to be very knowledgeable. People stand up when they come in the room. Sometimes they get a little too big for their britches. Um, Don Regan, when he was chief of staff under Reagan, liked to have his own introduction music. Now, the president gets hailed to the chief. The chief of staff is not supposed to get his own introduction music. In fact, Nancy Reagan said he's pretty good at the chief part, but he doesn't recognize the of staff part. (laughs) That's fantastic. As a historian, who would you say was the most powerful chief of staff? Who would you say is the one where you walk into the job as Biden's chief of staff and you say, man, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm standing in his, in his shadow. I'm somewhere near him. I would be careful of the way you phrase it because the most powerful chief of staff is not necessarily the best chief of staff. Right, right. The best chief of staff is Jim Baker. Without a doubt, he was chief of staff under Ronald Reagan, Reagan's first term. And the metrics I have for measuring this, I don't just make it up, is do you serve a full term? Do you have no scandal while you're there? And do you get the president reelected? So those three metrics and Jim Baker's really, he's probably the only one who succeeds on all three. And he just knew how to move Washington. He knew how the the wheels of power and he just did a great job at it. Uh, There have been other good chiefs of staff, but uh, I think Jim Baker is the gold standard. A standard for this new uh, chief of staff. Let me ask you, you have a great book called Fight House, uh, where you talk about all of the fights and and the internal battles within the White House. Two-part question. Number one, what does that look like in a typical White House? Why would you have a title like that for a book? Is there a lot of things we're not seeing? And I think the second part of it is based on that, how is the Biden administration doing? When I think of a fight house, I think we've got like wrestling matches going on and and there's a lot of uh, smack talk and back and forth and battles. What does that sort of historically look like and how is our current White House doing? Yeah, well, I started working on Fight House during the Trump administration when all you could read about in the papers every day was around all the infighting of the Trump administration. And they all said it's unprecedented, unprecedented. Well, I'm a presidential historian. When I hear the word unprecedented, I look for precedents. And I found dozens of precedents of lots of infighting in the White House, actual physical altercations, people undercutting each other, people stealing jobs from one another, stealing offices, all kinds of nasty stuff happens. And it's not surprising. It's a bunch of alpha males and alpha females in a very high stakes environment with a very short runway, and you've got to get stuff done. So it doesn't surprise me that there's infighting. But what I also reveal in Fight House is that presidents have levers that they can use if they so choose to limit the amount of infighting. And some presidents have been better at this than others. Now, the Biden White House is an interesting case because, first of all, Biden does not like infighting. He says he doesn't like to read that insidery stuff by which he needs the infighting. So he takes some steps to limit it. But the other interesting thing is that the press tends to focus less on infighting in a Democratic administration than they do in a Republican administration. They revel in it when it's a Republican administration. And when it's a Democratic administration, they pull back a little bit. So I think Biden has some, to some degree, less of it. But I also think it's covered a little less as well. I encourage the listeners to go out and buy a copy of Fight House. But give us a little little bit of juiciness from a president, uh, long um 
not with us. Uh, give us something good. So let's talk about the Ford administration. So in the Ford administration, there was this guy named Bob Hartman, who was very close to Gerald Ford, but he was a complete jerk and a bit of a drinker. And he set up shop in the room that's right next to the Oval Office, the, which is basically the Monica Lewinsky room. And he would monitor the presidential inbox. If he saw something that he didn't like, he would pull it out of the presidential inbox and feed it to the press, specifically to Evans and Novak, who were the top columnists in Washington at the time. But if he had something he wanted to get in there, he would just shove it into the inbox without going through the staffing process. And both of those are complete violations of the process that is supposed to govern every decision in the White House. And eventually, Dick Cheney, who's the deputy chief of staff, had to have his door locked and painted over so that he couldn't enter that room and he relegated him to an office outside the president's immediate vicinity. It's always funny to hear these stories because I think the average American, uh, certainly the average listener, thinks to themselves like, oh, well, it's the government's completely functional. There's no fighting there. There's no issues there. And then you hear about Dick Cheney painting his office. The elected officials are just like us, right? Uh, in some ways, worse, because you got to have a certain kind of gene to be interested in elected politics. Exactly, exactly. One more question for you, which I think is really on everyone's mind in terms of the debt ceiling and the fiscal crises and everything else like that. I saw that the Speaker McCarthy is planning on going and sitting down with the president, and that made a lot of news. I know the press doesn't like to cover the unity as much as the fighting that goes on, but they are going to be meeting. And it begs the question, how do you think this relationship's going to look based on past precedent? Because just in my lifetime, I mean, I remember Jim Wright and Reagan battling it out. I remember clearly Gingrich and Clinton battling it out. And Pelosi and Trump had no love lost there. How do you think this relationship's going to go between McCarthy and Biden, especially because Biden's someone, like you said, who doesn't like the fighting in general, maybe just infighting? And then what's the context and framework we look at for that? Well, first of all, let's say Clinton and Gingrich fought, and they did. But on the other hand, they also worked out a lot of big, important deals together, including the Balanced Budget Act and the welfare reform. And those were hugely important bipartisan wins. And they happened because of the cooperation between the two men, even as they were at each other's throats politically. So you can have political discord, but also policy agreement. Now, both McCarthy and Biden are kind of good guy politicians, backslappers. They like to get along. They like to be happy. They're not really these sharp elbowed preachers like a, like a Gingrich was or a Pelosi and, and Trump were. So there is potential. But I think Biden's rhetoric in his first two years towards McCarthy and the Republicans he doesn't like calling them semi-fascist and MAGA Republicans and all this stuff, I think that is potentially damaging to the relationship. Also, uh, McCarthy has that very, very narrow hold on the speakership and five people who can basically blow things up at any time. But if there are two politicians in Washington who could potentially work out a deal, I would see McCarthy and Biden as being among them. I said that was my last question, but I got one more because I can't help myself. Shoot. I encourage people to follow uh, Tevi and, and check out what he's doing. But every time president gets a cat, Tevi's tweeting out the other eight cats that every other president got. Let's say they have a new hobby, which is marbles. But they get a new Jewish team of staff. Yes, yes. Tevi's like there for us. So leave us with something fun or interesting that we may not know. Uh, presidential hobbies, presidential something, something. We, we... All right. So I got one. I got one. Please. Biden loves his Corvette, right? But presidents have been having cars since 1899 when um, the first president to get in a car was William McKinley. Uh, William Howard Taft was the first president to have a, a government car. And Franklin Roosevelt had a special design car that had its own cigarette holder because he was so addicted to smoking. I like it. I like it. We will continue to find opportunities to have Tevi on with us. We really, truly appreciate his insights and a little look into the future by looking at the past. Thank you, Tevi. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me.
Maury, thanks very much for that interview. It's always good to hear from Tevi Troy. He's uh, knowledgeable and experienced, and he always has uh, interesting insights in what to say. We're going to go right into our influencer of the week now. Maury, with your permission, I'll go first. And my influencer of the week is none other than Esther Chayut, the president of Israel Supreme Court. I think that uh, with uh, the ruling that she made or that she led on the Ari Derry case to disqualify uh, Derry from uh, being a cabinet minister and from the fact that she's shown a lot of fight in the uh, effort uh, of the uh, Justice Department here in Israel to stop the Netanyahu government from pulling off the justice reform that they promised to their voters. That all still remains to be seen how that's going to play out. But when you also think about what happened in Davos uh, this past week, where this was a topic of discussion at the biggest annual economic conference in the world, and the governor of the Bank of Israel came back and he basically had a meeting with the Prime Minister Netanyahu and said, hey, you better slow down on this because the whole world is shaken up about this. Uh, now, if the Supreme Court hadn't made the ruling that they did, if they had decided to uh, roll over and play dead, so to speak, then I don't think any of this pushback would be happening. So uh, Esther Chayyub, president of Israel's Supreme Court, still has a tremendous amount of influence. Uh, she showed it in the past week or two, and I think we're going to see that rolling forward as well. All I heard over the last week was her name. So great selection. From my perspective, the influencer of the week is Governor Newsom. To me, the reason why he's the influencer of the week is because there were two horrific shootings in California where Governor Newsom is the governor and Governor Newsom uh, was on the scene. Governor Newsom was leading on the issue. But to me, the reason why he's the influencer of the week is because what he says becomes national news. And this is the talk and look of someone who's considering running for president. And the fact that he has in his home state, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who can rail against like he did this week and he can do those things demonstrates why he's such an influencer and why he's the influencer of the week because he took something that happened in America and he was the leading voice on it. What it bodes for him is his presidential chances, the sort of rise of him as a national figure. And very much you're seeing what's happening with DeSantis on issues is happening to Newsom as well. These governors of large states have the ability to control narratives, control issues, talk about issues in a very serious way. And so to me, that's why Governor Newsom is the influencer of the week. And now for the fearless forecast. We were talking about this earlier in the program about tough Senate races coming up in 2024. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that Bernie Sanders is not going to run for re-election in Vermont. Now, that probably goes against all logic because uh, Sanders uh, is going to be 83 next election day. And it's not that he's too old. And we know that there's been senators who served uh, to 90. And I wouldn't be surprised if, on one hand, Bernie Sanders says, you know, I want to set the record for being the oldest senator in office. Uh, I think you'd have to get into his good 90s for that to happen. But I just have a feeling that he's going to uh, take a step back and uh, he's going to decide, let someone else do this job and let's get some younger blood here in Vermont. So that's my fearless forecast. I don't think that we'll see that in the next week or two. But I do think that uh, before they have to decide who's going to be the candidates in Vermont, that uh, we might well see that happen. My fearless forecast is called Nikki Haley at a Pesach program. And the reason why it's called Nikki Haley at a Pesach program is because I believe that by Pesach time, Nikki Haley is going to be all over the from community. There's already talk about her hiring presidential campaign consultants and her starting to dip her toe into the presidential race on the Republican side. I think by Pesach time, she's all over the from community. And I think the reason for that is because she's extremely popular 
amongst Jewish circles and certainly amongst from circles as well. I really strongly believe you're going to see her in Miami Beach. You're going to see her in New York. You're going to see her in New Jersey. Uh, the community really loves her. And the idea of her running is going to be very exciting to people. So I'm my first forecast is not only by Pesach time is she everywhere, but we either see her dropping into those Pesach programs as well to sort of make a name for herself. I think with Haley and other candidates who are perhaps uh, a little lower down in the polls at this stage, uh, the sooner they jump in, the better, because if they can get the jump, not only in fundraising, but in publicity, they can generate some positive momentum. So Maury, that's one I'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes on. I feel like we're doing really well with the fearless forecast. I don't feel like I'm as um, ambitious or bold as Binyamin. I feel like Binyamin's are great and they have specific dates and times on. So I tried with my forecast to give like a pace like date in April. I'm trying to keep up with Binyamin's fearless forecast because they are beyond fearless. Uh, so you're really setting the bar with a lot of specific dates and times. If any of these hit uh, Binyamin, it's going to be legendary. So we're excited for one of these to hit on the date and time you predict them. We'll have to revisit them because I think if we were keeping track right now, I think you'd be ahead of me at least two to one. But uh... some of mine are safer. Some of mine are safer. Binyamin's are great. They're like, Biden's going to do an announce in this state. Sanders is going to not run. Like really bold. I love it. I think it's great. We're going to have to revisit it. We got to do that for one of the segments. But uh, as always, fantastic, fearless forecast, Benjamin. Thanks, Maury. Good working with you, as always. Thank you. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash powerpolitics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.